Welcome to the Valley Church. Our mission is to see change lives, and we hope this relevant teaching inspires you to take the next step in your journey. Thanks for checking out the podcast and enjoy the message. Well, hey everyone, uh, I'm Pastor Mark. It's great to have you with us. We are in week four of our Revelation series. And so if you missed any of the previous weeks, man, I'd encourage you to go back. They all build on each other. Um, This has been a really fun series for us. I think a lot of us have applied a lot of things and learned a lot of things. And so today we're going to continue digging into um, a topic that can be confusing, but there's so much application we're going to pull out of this. Well, a man placed some flowers on the grave of his dearly departed mother, and he, he started back towards his car when his attention is diverted to another man kneeling at a grave. The man seems to be praying with profound intensity and just keeps repeating, why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? The first man approached him and said, sir, I don't mean to interfere with your private grief, but this demonstration of pain is more than I have ever seen before. For whom do you mourn so deeply? A child? A parent? The mourner takes a moment to collect himself, and he says, my wife's first husband. My wife's first husband. (laughs) Bad stuff happens. Evil stuff happens. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament that contains the reflections of King Solomon, the wisest wisest person ever to walk on this earth. He's now old. He's got a lot of life experience under his belt. And he says the following in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 14, 8, 14. He says, sometimes something useless happens on earth. Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. I say this is also useless. Did you get that? Bad things happen to good people? I, I think we all would agree that bad things happening to good people seems useless, seems meaningless, seems terrible. I mean, examples of, of rape and of, of murder and of airplanes crashing into buildings and of, of floods wiping out and tsunamis wiping out entire villages and, and the list goes on and on, right? I mean, just horrible, horrible bad things to people who didn't deserve it. Evil things to people who did not deserve it. If we were to go around today and if you were to comment to your host, if you're watching us on Facebook, or if you were to go even around your living room, if you're watching with some other people on YouTube right now, and each of us share a bad thing that has happened to us, if each of us would share a bad thing, we would be blown away, right? Right? It would almost be like just depressing. <laughs> we would just have to like just start praying and spend the rest of the service in prayer, right? Now, thank goodness that life is so much more than bad stuff, right? There's so much more. But eventually, all of us have bad things that happen to us. All of us have troubles that come our way. All of us have things that don't go the way that they would plan. That's normal and, and it's natural for us to experience it. But for some reason, we don't think life should be difficult. And because we don't think that, we are then shocked, we're surprised, we're taken aback when these bad things do happen to us. Uh, We do believe, right, in the pursuit of happiness and anything that doesn't fall under that pursuit of happiness or that umbrella of happiness kind of 
just kind of throws us on a curve. And all you have to do is turn on the news or, or go to your favorite news site online. You're going to see all the time, every single day, like multiple times every single day, that bad things happen to good people. Bad things, evil things happen to people who didn't, don't deserve it. In fact, bad and evil stuff is all, all around us. And I think we start asking that question, right? Well, if there is a God in heaven, then why does this happen? How can, these th- how can he allow these things to happen? The dilemma we face is the fact that Christianity teaches that God is all good, and Christianity teaches that God is all-powerful. But if he's all-powerful and there's so many bad things, evil things happening, then he must not be all-good. And if he's all-good and there's so much pain and suffering in the world, then he might not, must not be all-powerful or, or he would stop it, right? We, we run with these dichotomies, whether we've ever said them out loud or not, I don't know, but we do. We, we, we think he's all-good, and so when good things don't happen, when bad things happen, we don't think he's all-powerful. And when we say he's all-powerful and bad things happen, we don't think he's good or else he would have stepped in and stopped this. Those dynamics just don't seem to mix for us. And so here's one thing that's going to be certain today as we now go into the book of Revelation, actually, and and look at this idea of evil and the triumph over evil, is I'm not going to be able to give you a good answer to why bad things maybe have happened to you, why evil things maybe have happened, and definitely not for this whole world. I I would be a fool to give you a conclusive answer for every instance of suffering. I I would be an absolute fool (laughs) to, 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 to do that. And for most of us, right, it's it's fairly easy to speculate on why suffering occurs and why evil exists and why these things happen. We can speculate on it, but then when it happens to us, it, it kind of changes the dynamic, right? It becomes personal. We don't do theoretical things anymore. The theoretical doesn't work. We've now experienced it personally. And no cookie-cut answer, no theological perspective is going to take away that pain that we're experiencing and so today, uh, as we continue to journey through the book of Revelation, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about evil, and we're going to look at how he handled and will handle evil in this world. Now, the, the first three chapters uh, of the book of Revelation that uh, Caleb talked about, chapters 2 and 3 last week, deal with the first century church on earth right now. They're written to the church. I've said this before, but even though it's written to them, it's also written for us to apply here and now. Now we're going to shift some gears. We, we, first three chapters are here on earth to the first century. Chapter four that we're going to be in today takes us into heaven. A few weeks ago, we looked Later on in chapters 12 and chapters 13, specifically in chapter 13, when we were brought back to earth. But from chapters 4 to about chapter, middle of chapter 12, we are now taken to heaven and we get a view from there. So why don't we, without further ado, just jump right in. We're going to be in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, after this I, and this would be John, after this I, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Picture this, imagine as a door standing open into heaven. And the voice I had heard, first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. 
At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Picture this. He's now in the throne room and someone's sitting on the throne. The 24 elders, I'm just going to, it's there and I know that could confuse you. Um, a lot of different opinions and beliefs on that. I, I tend to lean towards these were these were angels, uh, ones who had been given higher levels of authority. They had been there from the beginning. I have a lot of reasons for believing that. I don't have time to go into all those, but um, they do have the, the appearance. They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold on their head, and some of the other uh, things that go around with that fit angelic beings uh, before. But, but I'm not, an, uh, I could be wrong, but just that's, that's one significant hypothesis on that. So this is where we are. We're now in the throne, one, throne room. Someone is sitting on the throne. There's a lot of majesty. There's a lot of power. There's a lot going on there. So then let's jump into verse, um, into chapter five as we continue with this vision. We're going to read the first 10 verses here. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one on heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. This is fascinating. No one in heaven, earth, or under the earth. In other words, every, no one. Every single dimension is covered. He says, I wept. John says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Those are all names. Again, a lot of the Bible goes, it's already been said before, these are already names that have been used to, to uh, designate or to explain Jesus. He is, he is the one able to open the scroll when it's seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I'll stop right there and just explain that for a second. Again, horns always represent power, and seven is always the number of perfection, okay? So I don't, I'm not one to believe that Jesus now has horns on his head. I think these were representative of his awesome, incredible power and his perfect power. Seven eyes, again, the, I, the number of perfection. Eyes see everything, obviously, and they, they are windows into the lives of others. They are, they are able to penetrate into, into, the, into, the, into the whole world. They're able to see everything that's going on. He, verse 7, he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne you're getting the image, the right hand, the hand of power, God himself on the throne. Jesus takes the, throne, takes the scrolls and says, when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, 
Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. This is cool. It's a new song. They are in worship, heavenly worship. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Okay, Here's the deal. This signifies the final judgment. Uh, it's believed that the opening of the first seal is during the tribulation period. This kind of signifies the, the tribulation period. Now, whether believers have been raptured before the first seal is opened or whether several seals have already been opened and the rapture takes place prior to another seal, that is up for incredible debate, and there's a lot of books and a lot of articles on that, and I'm not going to dive into that today. That's not the purpose today. But I did want you to know that that's, this is now looking at judgment. This is looking at the final judgment or the process of the final judgment. Now, fascinating enough, think about this scroll. This is how they wrote everything down at that time, and no, heaven was no different. And so what we learn from this, and, and there are the seven seals that are then explained. I'm not going to go into that today. And, and, um, and then the final seal that's open in chapter 8, or, and, and then the trumpets, and then the bulls, and all that stuff. We're going to cover those in some other weeks, and I'll even kind of even before the sermon pick out a few things that, just to hit on those, even then go into a sermon in these next, the final two weeks of the series. But this whole scroll was written out. So everything was written down beforehand in the scroll, which goes along with how Scripture always plays. God knows the future. God has, has set all those final things in place, so it's all written out. And then they would have rolled the scroll at the very end, rolled it up, and they would have sealed it. A wax-like material, that's how they sealed things, very much how they used back, back in that, in that uh, time period of, of a king sealing something. That was a wax seal that would have gone on to an official document. They would have sealed that, and then they would have rolled it again, and it would have been another seal, and rolled it again. So here's what's fascinating. As Jesus unseals this scroll and starts to pronounce the judgments that happen in the, in the, in the, the steps that happen in, in this tribulation period, he starts at the, at the last one and works his way forward. And that's how God's designed it, that the very first one is then the final judgment, the final part of, of, his, of the revelation that goes on here. Okay, so with that being said, I want you to hold this imagery. I want you to, to just understand and remember that this is the beginning of God uh, and Jesus executing final judgment and dealing with the things of this earth. Keep that in mind as we venture on today. I remember uh, proposing to my wife, Jessica. Um, we had gone to the Columbus Zoo, and it was finally that time I bought the ring, and she loved that zoo. We were living in Michigan at that time, so it was like a three-and-a-half-hour ride. And we had talked, so it wasn't like 100% surprise, but she didn't know I was doing it then and there. And so we we do, you know, to tour the zoo, and I find this spot. Her sister had come along to t take pictures and, all, and kind of be a, a buffer in the sense that, like, Jess would wonder, what in the why were we just doing this, the two of us? Well, let's just do this fun. This would be cool. All three of us go. And so I remember getting down on one knee, you know, and, and catching her in that moment of weakness, you know, and she mistakenly said yes, you know, and, hey, too bad, so sad. Now you got to live with this, okay? But... 
the thing I, that I remember with a proposal, and any proposal, or saying yes to anything, is that real love requires a decision, does it not? Real love always requires a decision. Real love can't be forced and be real. Jesus and God himself never forced his love upon us. I always say he's a perfect gentleman. He allows us to choose to accept his love or reject us. But God made us to love us. God made us to love us and for us to love him in return, which means that he gave us free will. Love is always a decision. God made us. He loves us. He put that love into us. He wants us to love us in return, but he doesn't require or make us do that. He gives us a choice. Loving him is is totally voluntary. And in fact, God, in creating us for his love, risked that we might, we might choose to reject his goodness. We might choose to reject his leadership and use that freedom to hurt other people. In fact, Isaiah 65, he says this, Lord says, all day long, all day long, I've held up my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations a people who continually provoke me to my face. You can almost see the image, an image of God with his arms outstretched, the arms of love saying, would you just reciprocate this? Would you just love me? Would you just love others the way that I've created you to love? Would you just come in and embrace this? And they reject them. They return in, in, in stubbornness. God says, I open, I open up my heart. I opened up everything to you and you reject it, and you bend towards evil. A stubborn youngster was told by his mother to sit down. When he refused twice, she made him sit, to which he replied, Mom, I may be sitting down, but I'm standing up inside. You see, rebellion comes as naturally to us as breathing. It really does. Adam and Eve made a willful and conscious choice to disobey God. And we follow suit when we choose to willfully disobey him and kind of go our own way. The choice they made and the choices that we make today to rebel have devastating consequences. The rejection of God and his love has been ushered in, and and that ushering in is of sin and evil that's in our world. That's the result of us rejecting him. You see, this, this world's not how God designed it to be. If we go back prior to the fall in Genesis 3, God designed this to be a perfect union between us and him and us with other, other people, us with the, his creatures he created, us with his world, the nature that we see. But when sin entered this world, it disrupted in a massive way what he had designed. Rebellion came in, evil entered, bad things started to happen. All kinds of things, abuse, trafficking, pride, anger, bitterness. So one answer we can give for why God allows so many bad and evil things to happen is that he, he doesn't, we do it, right? We make those choices. We have this amazing capacity to hurt other people and then blame God for it, right? Just That's just kind of what we do. Why would God give us this thing if a free will then, why would he give us? You ever think about this? Why did he give us free will? Why would he give us free will if it's so potentially dangerous? If it can be used to not only reject God, but to to do heinous things to each other. Well, the only answer I can kind of come up with is he must have thought you and I were worth it. 
that you and I were so worth him pouring out his love and giving us a choice to love him back that we were worth it. And so the question really comes that I ask myself is, why doesn't God just simply stamp out all evil? Why doesn't he stamp out all the bad things? Why doesn't he just get rid of it once and for all? Deuteronomy 29, 29 actually tells us we, there's certain things that we just don't understand. There's, there's things in the secret. There's things in God's dimension. We don't know why God operates the way he did. We, we don't know why he does all the things that he does. And we're not designed to know that. We couldn't handle that. It's like from that movie, you can't handle the truth. We couldn't handle all that stuff. We wouldn't know what to do with it. And the reality is, at the end of the day, here's the deal, and this is where some of us really struggle with. We don't hold God accountable. He holds us accountable for the choices that he makes. This is one that's pretty pervasive. Maybe people have never said this out loud, but think about how often we kind of approach things this way. Well, God, it's, God needs to be held accountable. Don't hold me accountable. I don't want anyone to hold him accountable. Definitely don't want God to hold, hold me accountable. There's not even a God to hold me accountable or whatever, right? But man, we want to put God on the ringer for a lot of stuff. We want to make him pay for that. We want him to fix this. We want him to have to own this. Folks, this will make your life so much easier if you just apply this. If you just start changing your mentality, change your thinking. We don't hold God accountable. He holds us accountable. That's his job, and that's our responsibility. So, as we saw in the passage today from Revelation, here's the deal with this passage. And I didn't get into the different seals and what each seal means. We don't have time for that. I will talk about that some next week, just kind of as a, a pre-serving like, uh, discussion, just to kind of clarify some stuff. But this, this opening of the seals, we are taken into heaven. We're taken to the throne. We're taken to the scroll that God himself holds in his right hand. And the only one in all the world who has the authority to open it and the power to open it is Jesus. He takes it out of the Father's right hand and he starts to open it up. And this is, this, this is the commencement of the process of, of God starting to make the things that are all wrong right again, uh, starting to deal with the evil that exists in this world. In fact, over the next two weeks of this sermon series, we're going to look at the process that takes place as, as Jesus Christ, once and for all, through the Father, starts to eradicate evil, and that eventually evil will cease to exist. Eventually evil will be gone. Eventually evil will be no more. But when I opened up this um, sermon series four weeks ago, one of the things I said, and if you missed the previous three weeks, you need to really go back and watch. They do build big time together. But one of the things I said was this. The book of Revelation walks us in to this fight, this battle that's already begun. When we open up the book of Revelation and turn to the very first chapter and the very first verse, we, have, we are walking into a battle that's already underway. This battle was in full force in AD 96. If you remember from week one, I said it started 30 years prior in AD 65 with Nero and then continued on with Vespian and the other emperors and just 
the first century Christians were in a battle like none other. In fact, I would say the persecution hasn't been matched to that totality across the known world since then. And so we're in a, they were in a battle then, this battle of good and evil, this battle of, of what God was wanting to do in this world and what Satan and, and his, his, adv- his, his uh, minions were trying to do in this world. And we're in a battle today. And we're going to be a battle in the future. And that battle continues. We're in this battle. We're watching this battle unfold. We're reading about this battle unfolding until once and for all the battle ends. And that's what we're going to cover the next two weeks. See, here's the deal. Here's the deal. When we talk about evil and we talk about the eradication of evil and we talk about and we look at the seals being open and, and, and the journey, the, the, um, the revelation that happens here that, G, that Jesus shows us and, and the prophecy of what's going to happen, that's not what really concerns me. That's not really what I want to spend all my time focusing on. And, and yes, I will help you understand what each of those seals means a little bit next week. But here's the thing that really scares me. It's not the things that I don't know that scares me. It's the things that I do know that scare me. It's the things that I do know that scare me. Here's what I mean by that. What am I going to do about the bad and the evil things that are happening to people right now? We get so focused in the book of Revelation. Christians can get so focused on the Antichrist, as we talked about, and, 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 and we can get so focused on the, the beast one and beast two, and, and, and we get so focused on he's going to win, that's going to be victorious, and, and there's a rapture, and there's a tribulation, and there's a millennial reign, and all. we get focused on so much of that. And we lose sight on the thing that we shouldn't ever lose sight on, is what are we called to do right now in the battle that currently exists to help eradicate or help to push back on evil until it's finally eradicated, to diminish it. We're not weak here as followers of Christ. We're not crippled. We're not impotent. Okay, We have a responsibility. And so it's not what I don't know that bothers me. It's not what I don't understand about all the imagery in the book of Revelation or all the sequence of events. It's what I do see that I'm not doing anything about or I'm not seeing the the capital C church or I'm not even seeing the lower C Valley church do something about or the people who make it up. That's what bothers me. What am I doing to alleviate suffering? What am I doing? What are we doing to alleviate hunger? What are we doing to alleviate sickness? What are we doing to alleviate divorce? What are we doing to alleviate kids who don't have a home? What are we doing to alleviate all those things? We can't sit passively by. We can't say that we're followers of Christ and then we just ignore all that stuff. And we're not called to fix it all. None of us are called to do that. But what do you see that's wrong in this world? What do you see that's bad? What do you see that's possibly evil? And you say, just like Popeye said when he got all fired up, I've had all I can stands and I can't stands no more. This is why we do what we do at the Valley Church. This is why we help people discover how God wired them and help them to hear and respond to the Holy Spirit's voice so that they can follow and do what God calls them to do to fix what's wrong in this world and help them make it right. That's why we ask all of our life groups to partner with some nonprofit, whether it be school, a school or a nonprofit 
organization to help come alongside of all already those who are trying to take the bad and the evil and the wrong things in this world, and we're coming alongside to give them a helping hand. That's why we do a Christmas Eve offering that 100% goes to some organization helping to push back on the bad things going on. That's why we do what we do. That's why 20% of all that comes in between our two locations goes out. Goes out locally, goes out regionally, and goes out all around this world to help those going through bad things, to help push back on evil. Psalm 34, 17, 18 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. As we close today, here's what I want to ask you. Is your heart breaking today? Some of you, your heart is breaking for what's going on in your life. You've experienced bad things. You've experienced maybe evil things. Is your heart breaking today? The Lord is close. Cry out to him. Have you lost someone recently? Are you lonely? The Lord is close. Cry out to him. Are you going through a tough time in your marriage? The Lord is close. Cry out to him. Are you going through a financial upheaval? The Lord is close. Cry out to him. Is your health failing you? Did you get a diagnosis recently? The Lord is close. Cry out to him. Are you just so overwhelmed by all the things that you see in this world? The Lord is close. Cry out to him. Have you been just under a siege of anxiety or depression? The Lord is close. Cry out to him. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. We see that this is the beginning at the end of him eradicating evil, but he doesn't just wait until then. He's wanting to do it now. He's wanting to take the wrong things in this world and he's wanting to make them right. He wants to meet you on an individual level and he wants to see us individually and corporately and collectively help push back and knock down the gates of hell from which all evil things come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, today we come before you. God, I pray for anyone going through a really bad stretch right now, going through a tough time, whatever that might be, that they would do what we just said there today, that they would remember the Lord is close, cry out to him. And maybe all throughout this week, they need to write this down, they need to put it somewhere the way they see it so often. The Lord is close, cry out to him. The Lord is close, he is near to the brokenhearted, cry out to him. God, and I pray for others of us, or for all of us, in fact, no matter where we're watching this today, that we would maybe even talk with our host, but we would, we would, we would get so focused on and allowing you to speak to us about what's wrong now that we need to play a role in helping get right. That we know you're going to be victorious. You tell us you're going to be victorious. We see how you're victorious now, but you don't just do this isolated. You do this by us coming alongside and partnering with what you can do, and then you do the heavy lifting. So God, I pray today that we would have the boldness and courage to listen to you and to take these next steps of faith, whatever it might be, whether it be to talk to one of our hosts online or talk to someone about the next step we're to take. God, thank you for meeting us here today, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.
And if you do, if you're watching today and you're going through a brokenhearted season, our hosts want to pray with you. But if you're watching today and you just know that you need to start doing something, you see the brokenness in this world and you want to do something, let one of our hosts know, if you're, especially if you're on Facebook, or shoot me an email, mark.coulter at thevalley.church. I want to get you connected. We want to get you connected to something that gives life to you and that brings life in the midst of darkness, that brings light into the midst of darkness. Well, hey, two more weeks of this series, man. I I could go on and on. I love it. I really hope you join us. Thanks for joining us today. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or download our app to stay connected with all things The Valley. And if today's message impacted you, share it with a friend, because changed lives change lives.